Listen to the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So reads God's word. We have a very interesting passage before us this morning here. We have a very helpful passage before us. We have a very needful passage before us. As Paul continues his teaching on how the strong and the weak should relate to one another within the body of Christ. This is an extended section given what seems to be its relative importance in relation to the rest of what Paul has written about in this letter. Amazing that two chapters are spent on this topic. But my friends, I believe it is because the church needed it in the first century, and it has needed it at least equally as much throughout every single century, every generation since then, how to relate to one another between the strong in faith and the weak in faith, defined by those who understand the freedom in Christ versus those who really don't, who don't have a sense of freedom and conscience to participate in different things that we have called at various times secondary matters or, um, or disputable matters, things that we try to use to summarize how this is described in the text. Not unlike what we saw in the middle of chapter 13, though, where an exception all of a sudden appeared in verse 8 there. It was introduced by Paul into a seemingly unconditional word of instruction that we should be submitting to governing authorities. We saw an exception, and all of a sudden we saw a whole world open up to us about how we relate to governing authorities in a loving way, submissively, even when we stand in opposition to them in some form of disobedience. We see, I believe, a similar thing going on here. Here we see what I would call a deeper word, a a more explicit expression, a, a pointedly intentional aim introduced into the loving disposition of the strong toward the weak that I would say broadens significantly our understanding of the range of application of this teaching here in Romans 14 and 15. I'm going to come back to those words at the end. We see a deeper word, an explicit expression, a pointedly intentional aim 
that broadens significantly our understanding of how this whole passage of strong and weak works. What sort of instruction we're being given. So let's get right at it. Since I lost my lengthy introduction privileges after last Sunday, we're going to move right into the text this week. It comes in two parts. You can see them listed there for you in your bulletin. Christ as our model for building up our neighbor, verses 1 through 4. And then Christ as our motivation for unity in the body, verses 5 and 6. But this text, again, hangs together as a unit, as one of the single uh, four-paragraph contributors toward chapters 14 and 15. So first, Christ is our model for building up our neighbor. The bottom line in this text is given in the opening words. But that's also where we get our first hint that Paul is beginning a new section of this teaching, even though it's on the same topic that he's been on since 14.1. We see it with his switch from second person to first person address here. That's one of the things you note when you're studying the Bible, when the voice changes. And he finished 14 with a flourish in first person now, or switched from second person now to first here in chapter 15. We see it with his first explicit mention of the strong. Strangely enough, that surprises many when you realize chapter 15, verse 1, is the first time the strong are referred to as the strong. It's, it's been that nebulous group in contrast to the weaker ones up until now. But along with these, we also see that he may have been setting us up for this new section since the middle of chapter 14. We'll see that in just a few moments. He begins here with that bottom line, we said. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. There's the teaching of our passage this morning. But wow, do we need to look at that and understand it to appreciate what it's telling us. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. It could feel immediately upon hearing that as, really, Paul, you're going to continue on on this same subject? And I would say, no, not exactly. He's going to give us something additional. In fact, he already has. Let's look at these words. First of all, this word obligation. It's the very same word that was translated back in chapter 13, verse 8, as owe. Do you remember that? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Pretty significant verse. Well, that instruction is continuing on here in chapters 14 and 15. We've seen this text anchored to, rooted in love from the end of chapter 13 there. But that paragraph began with that same word, owe. So we who are strong owe it to the weak to bear with their failings, we might say. So this love we owe one another now calls us to do just that, to bear with the failings of the weak. But here's where we need to be careful. I think that translation could be misleading. Better would be this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. There's some range in that word, but it's a pretty specific word that primarily means to pick up, to carry, to help with. 
More literally, we might say, we the strong should bear the spiritual shortcomings of the not strong. That's kind of coming straight over from the Greek as best we can make it in a readable way. We the strong should bear the spiritual shortcomings or the weaknesses of the not strong. The action of bearing here recalls Isaiah 53 verse 4 that was modeled by Jesus and referenced in Matthew 8 and other places. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's the picture. The idea then is not just he's endured with our sorrows. He has taken them on himself. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Beyond mere loving, welcoming endurance of the weak then, beyond mere toleration of the weak, Paul is now using the same language that he used over in Galatians chapter 6. Verse 2. I'll read verses 1 and 2 because it's helpful to hear context. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It comes with a warning. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The same word of instruction. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ. It's not a charge to just endure with one another's burdens, but to bear it, to pick it up, help with it. And we do this, continuing in verse 1 here in Romans 15, not to please ourselves, which means we do it in the same spirit as Galatians 6 and as Romans 12 through 14, we might say, as those passages prescribe. We do it with humble, gentle, genuine, welcoming love. Just to use some of the descriptors that appear explicitly in each of those texts. So in this way, Paul says, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor. Let each of us act for our neighbor's good, for his good, in accord with his best interest, we might say, to build him up to edify him so this is active what Romans 5 is calling us to do is active it's not a passive endurance with the weakness of the weak it's some sort of an active expression of helping with the weaknesses of the weak aimed at their good We heard similar language back in chapter 14. I mentioned Paul's kind of had an on-ramp since then where he introduced this idea. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He's looking to encourage and strengthen one another, to build one another up, to edify. That's the aim of the instruction that he's giving here. And he's escalating that instruction. So we're not just enduring everyone's weakness. We're told to do that in chapter 14 when someone's weakness would be an actual violation of their conscience to lay it down. 
But there are more things in this category that Paul is talking about. We're not just enduring everyone's weakness. At least with some, we're also bearing their weaknesses. We're bearing their shortcomings. We're shouldering their failings with them, we might say. Perhaps even on their behalf. We're getting in under a burden like we're used to doing with one another, helping out with a weakness. That's the language. I believe that's the picture. Now this could refer to that welcoming disposition we're called to display toward those whose consciences won't allow them to eat meat or drink wine, just as we saw in chapter 14, especially in the early half of it. But I think Paul is saying more here, and I think he's saying it rather clearly. This new language, this new syntax that begins our chapter 15 seems to be adding, at very least, a nuance. Something akin to Paul's instruction in Galatians 6, where some expression of loving action is called for, something that's pleasing and edifying to our neighbor, and it fits quite nicely with both of these two passages, Romans 14 and 15 and Galatians 6. If we keep in mind the fact that this building up has in view that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ... There's a helpfulness toward maturing that's going on here. So I would say, if this is what Paul is doing here in Romans 15, if he's adding an action step that we might need to express towards some who display characteristics of the weak, but whose failings require a bit stronger, more direct challenge, thus the first-person charge shift, making our engagement with them now an obligation, if this is what Paul is doing here, then what sort of behavior might he have in mind? He's obviously giving this instruction towards some application, and here's where, because it's not explicit in the text, I believe we can oftentimes miss the point of this and think that Paul's just repeating himself in chapter 15 from what he's already said in chapter 14. I don't think he's doing that. It sounds to me like Paul is giving us just the sort of direction we need to handle a category of professing Christian that he met in almost every city he visited with the gospel. And we still see today in our world. Namely, those who behave like the weak but want to speak and act like the strong wielding that sort of influence. It's a very dangerous game we're talking about here, but it's all too familiar throughout church history. We call it legalism. It arose as Jews began receiving Jesus as Messiah back in the first century, then wrestling with how Old Testament law fit in with the gospel. How much of it comes over? What do you have to do in order to be saved? Is it just savingly believe in Christ? Or do we have to add more into that? Does something of Old Testament law and requirement have to come into the picture? And Paul addresses that specifically and head on in Galatians. And he addresses it specifically and directly here in Romans as well. He just spreads it out so much that we don't hear that as the central forceful statement that's being made. But boy, it's here in this letter all along. 
Paul has had that issue in mind throughout this letter. Those who insisted that some form of adherence to the law was necessary for salvation in Christ. That's the core problem Paul was addressing in his letter to the Galatians, but over the centuries, many other types of requirements have have seeped in in addition to the Old Testament law, seeped in at different times and in different places, quite often still related to matters of eating and drinking, but also other types of expressions, how we dress, kind of recreation we participate in and so forth. Even, even here, as the scriptures are translated from uh, other languages, what, what the favorite version of the Bible would be. That's certainly a struggle of affluence. Some don't have the word of God at all. We have it in so many versions we can fight over them. So these are some of the other ways that standards of righteousness in addition to just embracing the righteousness of Christ by faith have seeped in and distorted the gospel in the church. And that's just what happens. Details aside for the moment, Legalism is a dangerous game because of what Paul said explicitly to the Galatians right in the opening part of his letter to them. As he wrote to them, he said that this creates a different gospel, legalism does. It distorts the gospel by requiring something more than the finished work of Christ for sinners to be reconciled to God. Anything more than that. But whatever more it is, it's usually something of their own doing that has to be added. Paul says that's no gospel at all. This is a dangerous game. So, if this is the kind of thing that Paul had in mind here in Romans 15, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about bearing with the failings of the weak. They're struggling with something that's getting in the way of their own faith. Now it's not just a sensitive conscience. It's something more requiring an active, loving expression from the stronger ones in the body of Christ. If this is the kind of thing Paul has in mind here, something that's causing a different gospel to be preached or is distorting the gospel that's there, then we might expect that the next thing he'd do here is to remind us of the finished work of Christ. He'd remind us of the heart of the gospel, of what Jesus has done to reconcile sinners to God. That would be a good next step if this is what he means. And that's just what he does. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Verse 3, the ground for that, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is quoting Psalm 69. As a matter of fact, he's quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. It's an interesting quote because it doesn't immediately resonate with us. How does this work? Why are you drawing our attention to that expression of the work of Christ? Well, to summarize, let's walk through this. To summarize Psalm 69, and I love Tom Schreiner's words here, so I've just given you a quote from him to give us the heart of what Psalm 69 is about. The psalm relates how David, as a righteous sufferer, was forsaken by his friends and attacked by his foes. It's common, by the way, it's a common 
New Testament reference Psalm 69 is. It's considered to be messianic. And many of the images, as you read through somewhat lengthy Psalm 69, you get pictures of, of, of Jesus and you hear New Testament echoes of New Testament writers picking up some of those themes to describe Jesus. So it's seen as a messianic psalm. To, to get back to Schreiner's quote, though, the psalm relates how David, as a, sufferer, as a righteous sufferer, was forsaken by his friends and attacked by his foes. Then Paul lifts out verse 9, stating that the reproaches directed against God have fallen on Christ. That's the picture that Psalm 69.9 gives us. The reproaches that were directed against God have fallen on Christ, and that's the word that Paul puts in Jesus' mouth here in Romans 15, verse 3. Now, it's hard not to see how the strong could surely imitate Christ here, not pleasing themselves in their expression toward the weak, just as Jesus did not please himself in his expression towards sinners. Rather, he laid down his life for them, saving them from their sin, yes, but to, to use some of the categories of Psalm 69, he also saved them from shame and disgrace, the things that David talks about in that psalm. Jesus did what was necessary to save people from that. But honestly, if that's the focus, that's not a very good use of Psalm 69. I could spend a long time spelling out why, but I appreciate a comment from Doug Moo that, that puts it pretty clearly in a single sentence. Moo wrote, why Paul uses this particular quotation is not clear, since we have no reason to think that the strong were enduring reproaches. Right? We could get caught up, and that's what most of the commentaries seem to do in their handling of this verse, caught up in the rich illustrations of the sacrificial love of Christ and all of the different layers of the atonement that he has provided for his people, but losing track, I would say, in the midst of that about why this is quoted here. Why Paul uses this particular quotation is not clear since we have no reason to think that the strong were enduring reproaches. The same thing we were wrestling with in our preaching team this past Wednesday. Where does reproach come in here? Because however we're supposed to understand reproach, it's going to be a help in understanding what the passage is teaching. So just, just turn Moo's quote around and what we might say here that I think can get us on the path pretty quickly is... Quoting Psalm 69.9 here would make most sense if the strong are somehow enduring reproaches because of their expressions of love toward the weak. That would make some sense. And if the weak who are being discussed here in chapter 15 are in fact legalists, then reproach is just the response we'd expect to see from them toward the strong. The freedoms embraced by the strong are the focus of the reproach of the weak. That's, that's a believable statement. Reproach is precisely what legalists feel for freedom. So now this is getting rather interesting. Rather than just enduring the weaknesses of those whose consciences are too sensitive to embrace the fullness of 
the freedoms that we have in Christ then, the strong are also called to bear the failings of the weak here in Romans 15. Quite possibly of the legalists who want to enforce their favorite restrictions among the church as a whole. And to bear those failings just as those who are spiritual do with the burdens of anyone who's caught in any transgression over in Galatians 6. Did you hear what we're saying? The chapter that's been added is turning from just endurance of those who are weak and can't help it. You're turning your attention to help out those who are weak but evangelistic about it. Trying to turn others into weak believers. But to do so with the very same loving, gentle disposition that both Romans 12 through 15 already and Galatians 6 as well explicitly call for. I believe this makes the best sense of Paul's quotation of Psalm 69. The strong in imitation of Christ don't seek to please themselves but humbly and gently in genuine love seek to restore to borrow the language of Galatians 6 seek to restore those trapped in the spiritual shortcomings of their belief their faith maybe their legalism even though it means they'll likely have to endure the reproaches of those who reproach God in this gospel-distorting way. Just to help us, I would go on to say, even if it's not legalism here, I think it's something like that which calls for loving action from the strong that brings them reproach from the weak. It doesn't have to be legalism, in other words. I don't want to hear it spoken around here that Romans 15 is about legalism, all right? Can we agree on that together? It's not. It's about the relationship between the strong and the weak. But as we press to understand that legalism is a really helpful illustration to see what he might be talking about. If Paul is saying here that the strong in imitation of Christ don't seek to please themselves but humbly and gently with genuine love seek to restore those trapped in the spiritual shortcomings of their weak faith perhaps putting them in a place where they're not ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ or it wouldn't go well for them there then humbly and gently and genuine love they seek to restore even though it means they'll likely have to endure their reproaches that reproach is actually against God just as Jesus' quote makes it. The reproaches of those who reproach God because it's his freedom they can't embrace have fallen on the strong as they seek to be the voice of the word of God, of the spirit of God, of the will of God in the lives of the weak. So even if it's not legalism, I think it is something like that which calls for loving action from the strong that brings them reproach from the weak 
That fits in the text. Paul then offers a quick parenthetic affirmation that this is precisely the way that we should use the Old Testament, namely, verse 4, for our instruction, so that through endurance, endurance urged by the Scriptures, and through the encouragement supplied by the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have a resilient and joyful assurance that the promises of God's Word are both true and reliable, that they meet us in every form of need. As we engage them, they strengthen us. We use the Word of God to be strengthened. And I believe when we use Psalm 69 in this way through the lens of Romans 15, we're strengthened. We're deepened in our understanding of the nature of the relationship we share with one another here in the body of Christ. Moving into the final two verses, and Christ is our motivation for unity in the church, the remainder of today's text is a prayer wish. That's what it's called by a number. It's a prayer wish. Tying in the explicit blessings of the Scriptures with God Himself here, verse 5. So the blessings of the Scriptures, verse 4, tied in with God Himself in verse 5. We recognize God as the source, then, of our endurance and encouragement. And his word, verse 13, by the power of his spirit, is the instrument for that endurance and encouragement. That, by the way, comes from John Calvin. I love the way he sees clearly in a text like this. So we recognize God as the source of our endurance and encouragement and his Spirit-enabled word as the instrument by which it's delivered here. But that just lays the foundation, I would say, of Paul's thought here. The finished structure that's built on that foundation, the finished structure of this self-denying yet welcoming forbearance and expressive love between the strong and the weak that's described in 14 and 15 That finished structure is this. Here's what the finished structure looks like. It is a body of believers that exhibit the very qualities that Jesus prayed for before going to the cross. We looked at John 17 again just recently on a Wednesday night in prayer meeting and are moved by the love and unity for which Jesus prayed in the final six verses of that prayer before leaving the upper room and going to the garden and being arrested and heading to the cross. It was a unity the likes of which is enjoyed in the Trinity that he prayed for and a love between one another that reflects the love of God. That's what was on Jesus' heart. And what Paul is describing here is awfully close to that. The finished work that's built on this foundational structure that we've been looking at is a body of believers that exhibit the very qualities that Jesus prayed for, namely unity and love. And Jesus stands at the center of it all as the point of reference in accord with Christ. Do you see that language? But ultimately as the facilitator of it, as the one who makes it all possible. That's what we see in verses 5 and 6. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Jesus enabling it, in other words. And the net result of it all then is that the very purpose of our existence as human beings, the very purpose of our existence as image-bearing creatures The appointed aim and end of the church is realized in him. I said we'd get some finalized, final sounding wording here. Well, here it is. The net result is that our very purpose as human beings and as a church gathered is realized in Jesus. Verse 6, that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our purpose is realized as the ultimate outcome of pursuing genuine love as described in Romans 12 through 15, which is enabled only by the pure gospel described in Romans 1 through 11. Do you hear how this is a final sounding word here? There's still a paragraph to go in his instruction, but wow. Our purpose is realized as the ultimate outcome of pursuing genuine love described in Romans 12 through 15, which is enabled only by the pure gospel described in Romans 1 through 11. So my friends, this is the deeper word that I was mentioning, the more explicit expression, the the pointedly intentional aim introduced into the loving interaction between the strong and the weak that I believe Paul wants his readers to hear in today's passage. The only alternative I see to this reading, this reading of an active expression of edifying love, the only alternative I see to this reading is that he's saying once again here, and this time in a rather awkward way, precisely the same thing that he's already said quite fully and quite, quite richly in chapter 14. I don't think this is just review. I think this is something more. So I just don't believe that's what Paul is doing, reviewing his thought. I believe he's brought us to the place where the strong in faith are ministering mercifully and selflessly to the weak. Weak in ways that have been on his mind throughout this letter and throughout his ministry. Aiming toward the outcome of a mature and unified church that magnifies the glory of God by caring well for one another even if it costs us something. I think that's what Paul's telling us here. I believe he's brought us to the place where the strong in faith are ministering mercifully and selflessly to the weak, aiming toward the outcome of a mature and unified church that magnifies the glory of God by caring well for one another even when it costs us something. My friends, if that's what Paul is doing here, my only response, and the response I would encourage for you, 
is to say, Heavenly Father, make us such a church. Agreed? What a powerful word that Paul has given us here. What a foundational word he's given. What an insightful word he's given. And he will finish the final paragraph by drawing our attention back to the Holy Spirit, who's the one who makes it possible for us to know by experience, by obedience, the word that he has shared in this letter. Join me now as we pray. Those who are serving communion and leading in music, please return to the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. I pray that you would help us to hear it and respond to it as you have purposed. I pray that you would enable us to embody this truth as you alone can enable through the work of your Son that we receive by faith and the Holy Spirit who is granted to us Help us, Lord God, to love one another like this, recognizing that that doesn't just enable the fullness of our experience of what Jesus died for us to experience here and now. It becomes the very strength, the very stability, the very persuasive element of our witness to this world who desperately needs to know Christ. So Heavenly Father, make us such a church to the praise of your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.